Good afternoon, everybody. Often in church, we hear messages, um, and I'm speaking about things that I've heard as well as uh, messages that I've given. Um, we hear messages that are instructive about certain topics with conclusions that are meant to either clarify, encourage, inspire, inform, or correct. And I think overall, this format with all of these different goals um, is, is really good. I think it offers a wide variety of messages that, that we can hear and that we can speak on. Uh, it's, not, it's not limiting in any way. So there's nothing wrong uh, with this provided uh, goal or backdrop for speaking. One thing I think that we could stand to benefit from, the one type of message, is how to think about certain things. Not just necessarily what to think, but how to think. Um, it doesn't mean that we would never hear messages about something that someone has concluded or done solid research on. Um, it, it's good to hear these kinds of messages. It's good for someone to go and study something and then come to church with their conclusions or their findings or their support from Scripture. That's really good. Um, this approach, though, of teaching how to think about something rather than what to think about something can be really beneficial because, well, actually we'll get to why in, in just a minute, but I want to be clear that this approach is not about everyone becoming an expert on everything or everyone thinking that they know the secret to doing all Bible study or anything like that. It's just a good idea because it establishes us in God's word and it makes us able to research the scripture for ourselves so that if anything is said that's a little bit off or even if it's something that's on, that, that is on point that you haven't thought about before, you can go to the scripture and compare what was said to that and do your own Bible study so that you can affirm things to be true. I think this is a responsibility that God expects of all of us. Not that we just come to church and hear things and immediately accept what's said. Um, if you'll think about the Bereans, when Paul went to them, they searched the scriptures to find out that those things were true and they were commended for that. So they knew how to study scripture not just how to hear a message and then accept that truth. So like I said, uh, some of the practical benefits of this kind of study include having a richer understanding of scripture, um, not being shaken when someone presents something challenging, which I think is really important. Um, I don't think we really have that issue here in this congregation necessarily, but in the church's past that's happened, and it's probably going to happen again at some point in the future. So to be solid in what you understand about the Bibles is really important. And then having confidence in certain topics that you otherwise might just hope you don't really have to touch. You know, you might think, you know, there's so much to the Bible. I don't know a lot about this area, but it doesn't really matter. I can get to that way later in life because there's so much I have to do right now. Um, but I, I think that this is, I don't want to say irresponsible in a poor motivation way, but it's something that we should take responsibility for. If there's a section of scripture we don't really understand very well, or a type of passages in scripture that we feel uncomfortable with reading, we should, that should be the thing that pricks our conscience to say, I need to dig a little deeper into that. I need to understand what's being said here as best as I can, or at least not be afraid to read through those passages. So that's what we're going to do today. And the, the analogy I've used for the importance of this type of message or this type of study with um, understanding how to think about something, and this is something I've used for a long time, but actually, I learned that Mr. Martins has used this also just a few weeks ago. We talked about it. And this analogy is of a brick wall. So our, our belief system, our faith, is like a brick wall. And it's surrounded by people who are 
shaking that wall. They're wiggling certain bricks. They're kind of testing the strength of that wall. They're removing some, throwing them out, replacing them with others. And each of these bricks is a point of our faith or our belief system, something that we hold to be true. And it's not wrong for these people to be doing this all the time. It's not wrong for this wall to be tested. But there's two types of people that can come out of this, within this analogy, that can come out um, once you learn their motivation. So some people are shaking the wall, testing the bricks, because they want to see what's loose, so they can throw out the brick and try and topple the wall. And they want to do that for themselves, maybe, or just to cause discord amongst other people. Um, I don't, I'm not going to speak to people's reasoning, but those are potential reasonings. But other people are shaking the bricks in this wall to try and shore up the parts that are loose. Right? They'll find a brick and say, oh, that doesn't sit in there quite right. I either need to make sure that this is the brick that goes here in this spot, or replace it with something else, or just cement around it so it's a little bit more stable. And so motivation is key in understanding what a person's motivation is um, for shaking at this wall. And motivation is also the thing that is the hardest to determine oftentimes. So it can be tricky. Um, and people often, when, when we think about studies like this on how to think about something for ourselves, I think a lot of times people would jump to the fact that, oh, well, you're trying to get everyone to start shaking that wall. It's like, well, yes, but not with bad motivation, not to tear anything down, but to test your faith for yourself, test your understanding of the Bible for yourself, and see what needs shored up, see what you need a little bit more confidence in. So I, I do want to encourage you as we go through this study to tread carefully in what you do with it, right? It's a good tool to have, but it doesn't mean you need to go and test every speaker or, you know, be antagonistic towards someone if they say something that you're like, okay, I want to go and find that out for myself a little bit. You don't need to be antagonistic at all. So be careful what you do with this tool. And one area that I feel we as lay church members really struggle um, to know how to study or consider for ourselves is prophecy. And so that's what we're going to be going into today. And I personally feel this a lot. I am not I am not the credible source on what a certain prophetic passage means. When I was actually looking for topics, I thought, you know, I've never spoken about prophecy before. And I thought, there's probably a good reason for that. I don't know a lot about what is in the prophetic books or, or all of what's spoken in there. But something I do have a, an okay grasp on is how I could approach those books if I wanted to look deeper into them. So that's what we're going to do. Um, so... Like I said earlier, sometimes with these topics, we want to push them off to the side and say, well, I don't really have to get into prophecy right now. I got so much work to do on myself as a Christian that prophecy can kind of wait till later. I'm hoping I just hear a good sermon on it, and I'll never have to look into it for myself. But this is really not a good approach because by a lot of estimates, predictive prophecy makes up about 27% of the Bible. Now, this is up to interpretation, right? Everyone has different opinions on exactly how much, but the rough estimates that I saw were anywhere between like 26 and 28. So average out to 27. That's a lot of scripture. That is a lot of our Bibles. And so I think it's, it is, the onus is on us to go and study those parts that we think, I'm a little confused on this, or I'm less confident in this section of scripture and say, I'm not going to just throw out 27% of scripture and hope that someone else gets it right so that I can just accept it and move on. We need to be looking into these things. So how to study prophecy. This is what we're going to look at today. And I want to go over how we're going to do this. So this is basically my outline for, for this message. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to get rid of common misconceptions about prophecy. 
Stripping away our bias is really, really important. Um, and we're going to go into that in just a second. Then we're going to start asking the right questions so that we can effectively study the scripture. And that means asking things like, what genre am I reading? What's the context of what I'm reading? And then even the possibility of multitude of fulfillments, right? So we know that prophecy doesn't always act as just God says something and then that thing happens. Sometimes it's God says something and it happens and it happens and it happens and it will continue to happen. And so how can we know when things are are going to be happening again or or if it was just an isolated incident? Um, And throughout this, we'll be going through examples uh, from the Bible. And then last, I I wanna go over one really important point that can be overlooked a lot, and that is just the point of being careful with the conclusions that we end up coming to when we discuss prophecy. So first, getting rid of misconceptions. This is really, really important. Um, It's not where we're going to be spending the majority of our time, but I think something definitely needs said about it. It's worthwhile going through. So I think up to this point, I'm hoping you followed me pretty far, why we're doing this study, why it's important, Um, and that's, that's great. I wanted to kind of explain why I was doing this because I'm about to introduce a word that I've actually said before in messages, but it's kind of a big, weird word that I think people would see and think, "Eh, I don't really need that at all. But it's basically just a word that describes exactly what we just talked about, and that word is hermeneutics. Um, Essentially, hermeneutics is just the study of interpretation or the art or discipline of interpretation. So you observe scripture, you observe what it says, and then you come to an interpretation and you've done hermeneutics. I don't want to have that word scare you, but I'll probably use it a few times uh, within this message. So I wanted to at least kind of give the term so that we know what we're talking about. So in hermeneutics, the basic thing you're doing, like I said, is observing and interpreting, but what you want to do before you do any of those things is try and remove as much of your bias as possible. So anybody who reads a text is going to come at that text with their personal background or their personal beliefs that they've been taught, or someone has maybe said something about that passage, and so they're either for that view or against that view. So we all have biases that we come to the text with. And I've come up with one, or at least one phrase that I think we come to prophecy with a lot of times. So, and if you have more, that's okay because it just means that you're self-aware and maybe more more self-aware than I am, anyways. But this is just the list that I came up with um, about a general bias that we have towards prophecy. Often, when we hear the word prophecy, or we think about studying it, we think that prophecy is unclear, poetic foretelling of the future. I've, I've had that view since I was a kid, right? I mean, that's, when I hear prophecy, that's what that is. It's not really clear, it's kind of ambiguous, there's a lot of imagery, poetic language, and it's, it's foretelling about the future. But in reality, prophecy, uh, certainly within its definition, it does have the concept of prediction, that is a concept within it, but it also includes inspired speaking, instruction, exhortation, and declaration. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Haggai. We're going to read in Haggai chapter 1. If you remember, Haggai was a prophet uh, to Judah after the exile. So Judah was in Babylon in captivity. They went back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild the temple. But they were kind of dragging their feet on doing it, right? They were focused on their own needs. And uh, they had built up their own homes. And even once they had taken care of those needs which was not a wrong thing, they still were dragging their feet on building this temple. And the reason this makes God so mad is because they just saw what it was like to abandon God, right? They went into captivity, and now he blesses them by bringing them back into the land, and it's almost like they don't want God to dwell with them again, right? It's like 
hey, this is the place that I'm living with you. This is, this is my home, and you're not ready to build that up to me? Do you not want me with you? This is kind of a question that God asked them. So he's a little bit frustrated with the people. And he says here in Haggai chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 7. We'll see a lot of different kinds of prophecy just in this one passage. In verse 7, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So you'll notice, like I said, a lot of different kinds of prophecy just within this one section. Um, All of this is prophecy, though. You have um, a declaration of God's current state, right? He's angry at them. You have uh, correction and exhortation saying, you've done this thing, but now you need to do this thing. Then you have um, an explanation of something that has happened in the past, right? So God said, I made this judgment on you, and this is why this drought has come upon you. This is why you're facing the struggles you are, because you haven't done this thing. And all of this section is considered prophecy, and yet there's no predictive things happening in this at all. So prophecy does not have to be synonymous with predicting the future. Actually, I think a really good way to think about the the Old Testament prophets are kind of like more accurate meteorologists. I think this is a good analogy uh, that just popped into my head because if you think about this, obviously meteorologists are getting their information from what they're observing and studying. Prophets are getting their information from God. But think about what a meteorologist presents to you. So they might say that it rained last night or that it's snowing or that a hurricane is coming, right? That is both past, present, and future. And that's good. It's important to know. If you wake up in the morning and it's flooding, you say, well, where did this come from? And a meteorologist will say, well, it rained last night. Okay, now I know where that came from. Or if you are waking up for the day, getting ready to go to work, and they say, hey, it's snowing really bad outside. Now you know to be careful on the drive-in. Or they say a hurricane's coming. This is really important. You're going to need to prepare for this. You're going to need to watch for the signs that it's going to be on its way through your path. So this is really good, but worrying about that weather, right? If you you think you can worry into changing it or thinking it's not going to happen, this is unnecessary because you can't do anything about it, right? That's a principle that Christ brings up constantly throughout the Gospels. So worrying about a hurricane even. I know that's the biggest one. I mean, you can worry about the you know, destruction, or you could worry about pain to your own life, and that's fine, but it doesn't take away the hurricane. The meteorologist is not responsible for the hurricane. All they did was present the information to you, right, about the past, the present, and the future, and then you have to ask, now what do I do with that information? So in a way, the entire Bible is prophetic because it's inspired speaking from God, right? It's his word to mankind. So all of scripture is prophecy. So if if you really want to get down to the brass tacks, To not study prophecy is to not study scripture. And to think of prophecy, like predictive prophecy, as something foreign or frightening, you really just need to think about it the way you think about the rest of scripture. It's not scary. It's just meant to tell you what has happened, what's happening now, and what's going to happen in the future. And then what do you have to do about that? Ask yourselves, 
when you read a certain prophecy, what do I have to do about this section? So this hopefully will strip away some of our trepidation, right? Some of the fear we come at prophecy with. And if we can get to that, then I want to move on to asking the right questions, because this is really, really important. And one of those questions that I listed at the beginning is knowing the genre that you're reading. And a lot of people will think, well, genre of prophecy, what does that even mean? I mean, isn't prophecy itself just a genre of scripture? And I would say, yeah, it definitely is. But there are sub-genres within that that are important to know what you're reading. Uh, in Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 2, you don't have to turn there, but it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So he uses multiple different ways to speak to his prophets. It's, it could be an imagery. It could be in... Um, a sound, something they heard. It could be something he told them to write down. It could be something he told them to act out to the people, like in Ezekiel's case a lot of the, a lot of the times. So there are, there are different sub-genres within the, the overall genre of prophecy that are important to note. You could have poetic or prose. You could have historical or apocalyptic. You could have judgment or consolation, fulfilled or unfulfilled, and foretelling versus forthtelling foretelling being predictive prophecy and forthtelling being someone says something that God just said, right? It doesn't have to be predictive necessarily. And knowing something like whether the author wrote in poetry or prose might not seem important at first, but it really, really is. And to illustrate that importance, I'd like to read something from a scientific journal. Uh, it says this, I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me, and what can be the use of him is more than I can see. He is very, very like me from the heels up to the head, and I see him jump before me when I jump into my bed. Now, did any of you buy that that was from a scientific journal? I really hope not, because it wasn't. It's a poem, and it is called My Shadow from Robert Louis Stevenson. Just a little excerpt from that. But if you read that poem as if I were reading a scientific journal, the conclusions you might draw would be way weirder than if you understood that it was a poem, right? So... Understanding the, the genre that you're reading is so, so important. Um, you could have taken from it, if you thought it was scientific, that my shadow is sentient, that it's a separate being because it, it shows a will of its own, or that it moves within the physical world and acts separately from me. You, you could have determined that if you read it like it was science, but it wasn't. It was poetry, and it was clear that it was poetry. Sometimes in scripture, it's not always so clear. So determining what you're reading is very, very important. Um, a really good example of this is Psalm 22, if you want to turn there with me. Psalm 22, this is a, uh, most people, a, a lot of people, I'll say, believe that this is a fantastic prof, uh, prophetic poem that David wrote about the crucifixion. And I got to say, the points are very strongly there in my mind anyways. Um, but just to, just to read through some of this in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Uh, if you want to skip on down to, it says in verse 6, it says, but I am a worm and no man. Well, did he mean that literally? Was Christ actually a worm? Did he become a, an insect or a bug at that point? No, no, he didn't. We're reading a poem, and so we know what's being said here. Um, it also says in verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan, or Bashan, depending on how you say that city. So were there actual cows surrounding Jesus Christ at his crucifixion? No, this is imagery. We're reading a poem again. Uh, another one that is, is really interesting that the Jewish people have actually taken 
to try and delegitimize this as prophecy is where it says, um, they have pierced my hands. Where is that at? 16? Okay. Yes, so verse 16, thank you. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. A lot of manuscripts will say, like lions at my hands and my feet. And the Jewish people will say, well, there were no lions at Jesus Christ's feet. They did not throw him to wild animals like they did so many Christians in the first century. So clearly this can't be about him. And they, they use that to delegitimize scripture. But we've just gone through several examples of poetic language. And it's never been a problem up to that point that this could easily be a prophecy about Jesus Christ. So why at that one? To me, it just seems willing. But I think it makes the point here that in poems, they're going to use poetic language. So it's really, really important to understand what genre that you're reading within prophecy. So that's just one. There's also historical and apocalyptic. I'm not going to go through these ones as, as in depth. But um, so you have to ask questions like, does this deal with the past or the future? Some prophecies are just about the past. The fact that uh, God prophesied that King Cyrus would raise up, right? That's prophecy, but I'm not expecting a future Cyrus to raise up. Nothing like that, right? Some prophecies are in the past. Some are apocalyptic and in the future. Um, there's judgment or consolation. So who's being judged? Who's being consoled? And what for? What time is this judgment or, or, or consolation supposed to come? Then there's also fulfilled and unfulfilled a lot of prophetic predictive prophecy, or sorry, that was, a, that was repetition, I didn't need that. A lot of predictive prophecy has already been fulfilled. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a future fulfillment, but if we look to the whole Old Testament, so much of it pointed to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And there's actually really good explanation in the New Testament about the fact that Christ said himself, this is about me, right? He, he pointed to the scripture in the Old Testament, and he said, um, these... Moses wrote about me. He talks about in, in the book of John and then in the book of Luke. It says he expounds the disciples on the scripture concerning himself. So the Old Testament prophecy points so much to Jesus Christ. So to be afraid of the topic or the genre of prophecy because you think you're going to mess up some future thing, well, a lot of the times that's just not really true or not really necessary. Um, and then, again, there's foretelling and forthtelling. So are we reading predictive prophecy or not? And this deals a lot in the purpose of writing, which we've kind of gone over a little bit today. So to go back to the weatherman analogy, I think this is a good one that I want to use at least one more time. Um, if the weatherman says it's going to be warm this weekend, so a lot of people will be at the beach. He predicted that it will be warm this weekend based on his observation. And then he inferred that people would be at the beach because of that. If we focus so heavily on the, well, I don't see anybody at the beach yet. I don't see them there right now. Well, you're missing the point. He just said it was going to be warm, so he inferred something else. But you have to know what is, what is the point or the purpose of what's being written or spoken in prophecy so that you can focus on the right things, not on the fringe things that you might not see as very clear. Another question we want to ask ourselves uh, after genre is context. And this one, I cannot stress enough. Whenever you are trying to determine what a certain passage is trying to tell us, context is absolutely crucial um, the ancient Israel and first century Jewish people, they understood a large portion of scripture because they had it memorized, right? They were not thinking, oh, I know like a few words from this book, kind of, and Googling it and getting that one verse. So we end up isolating specific verses or specific passages a lot more than they did in ancient times because 
they were familiar with large passages of scripture, or they would memorize it in large, large passages. So uh, that's a really important thing to remember. Without context, it can be incredibly difficult to get the correct interpretation of something. Um, If I told you that I laughed at work the other day, you might guess that I was laughing at a joke that someone told me, and you might be right. That's a good guess, right? But it doesn't mean that it's the absolute truth. You have to look at the context of everything else that I would say around that one line. So it could be that I laughed at work, but it was when everybody left, or someone texted me a funny joke and it wasn't told to me in person, or you could guess at how hard I laughed, or you know, you could guess all of these different things and it's possible that you're right because that explanation does build to that conclusion of me saying I laughed the other day. But it doesn't mean that it is the absolute, uh, the absolute way that that happens. So you have to understand not just um, what genre you're in, but also the context that you're reading something in because Without that, you're just guessing. And you might have a good guess, but it doesn't mean it's the absolute right guess. Uh, I talked about the fact that the Old Testament, so much of it was written pointing to Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that in just a little, just a little bit. Um, I'm actually going to move this section more towards the end, I think. But if you would turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 19. 2 Peter 1.19. This is something that I think some people might go to and say, well, see, we shouldn't really be doing any deep dives into prophetic literature at all. This should not happen. But I think you'll see that that's not what's being said here. 2 Peter 1.19 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this does not mean that an individual or a collective body cannot come to a correct interpretation of prophecy. That's not what's being said here. The point that Peter's making is that there is one truth about what God spoke. We might not be able to discern that truth right now. We might need some help getting to it. But there's one truth. There is no way, because God is the source of that prophecy, that I can have an opinion and you can have an opinion that directly contradicts mine and both of them can somehow be true. That doesn't work. Peter's saying here that there is one source of prophecy and that's God and only one outcome that is true. All we're trying to do is discern what the closest to the truth can be so that we can watch for it when it happens. And I think that's a really important thing to know. And then the last thing I'd like to go over is the possibility of multiple fulfillment. Because we know that there are prophecies that have been fulfilled, but also will be fulfilled. There's, there's an already and there's a not yet. And I think that's because a lot of prophecy is cause and effect, right? If you do this thing, bad things are coming. If you do this thing, good things are coming. So human history has not really been a different story very often. We continue to do the same things, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and the consequences get worse and worse. This shouldn't be surprising to us. But we do know there's multiple fulfillments of things. Uh, If you would turn with me to Amos 5. Amos chapter 5, I think Day of the Lord prophecies are really, really good examples of this. And that's what we're going to look at here in Amos 5. 
Amos was a prophet from Judah, and he went to Israel, which preaching to not your nation about how horrible they are always seems like a bad idea, but God told him to do it. In Amos 5, we're going to start in verse 16. It starts here with this this immediate uh, reference of talking about ancient Israel, right? The things that are going to be happening in ancient Israel when God allows Assyria to come and take them over. And then it jumps to this interesting part in verse 18 that we would say is predictive or is, is far in the future. So it says this in Amos 5:16. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, there shall be wailing in all streets and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing for I will pass through you, says the Lord. So this is a section talking to Israel about Israel. And then verse 18 switches to where we would say, well, this is all future. No, no, no thing here was about Israel themselves. And I, I disagree with that. So we'll go through this. It says in verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So we would look at this section and say, that's something we need to be looking forward to. Even though it came right after prophecy against the nation of Israel, and then jumps right back into prophecy about the nation of Israel. So how can we reconcile this? How can we reconcile that God in one verse is talking about an ancient thing, and in another verse is talking about a future thing? How would anybody discern that? Um, Well, one thing is that it does talk about the day of the Lord, which we have multiple verses saying that that is a future time that's coming. But we don't want to discount the fact that Israel experienced their own type of the day of the Lord. When Assyria comes in and is murdering all of the people, is sacking the buildings and tearing down everything that they've built and burning their crops, to them, that's the day of the Lord. They're dead now. They don't have any other reference for a future day of the Lord. But to them, this thing was fulfilled. And so uh, it, it's not bad to say that you know, God prophesied to a people, and in that time, he fulfilled it, and in the future, he will also fulfill it. We just have to be not so confident that, um, you know, that he only speaks in one way. Because sometimes you'll have something that was fulfilled in the past and might never happen in the future. And if God says that that's how he did it, I'm going to be okay with that. But if God says that there's a multiple fulfillment, I need to be on the watch for that too. But all of this has to start in an understanding about what Scripture does actually say. Um, Another thing I thought about was the Jews in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. If they didn't see that as the end of their world, you know, I'm, I'm thinking they did. To them, this is like the day of the Lord. And I'm sure the day of the Lord, when it actually comes, the real fulfillment of that will be even worse. The last thing I'd like to say to you today is is just I'd encourage you as you go and study prophecy, sifting it through this kind of template of questions we should ask ourselves, is to be careful with the conclusions that we draw. Um, We don't need to be afraid to read through prophecy. We don't need to be afraid to come to conclusions about what we read based on the context or the genre or credible sources or through prayer that God shows us the truth. Um, and, And we need to be ready for what's to come. But we do have to be careful about the conclusions that we draw because to rely so heavily on one interpretation of a fringe topic, unless the Bible is very, very clear and very, very specific, which it is so many times, 
it might make us blind to the possibilities that God actually had in mind. I, I think we never want to go so far with believing that our interpretation must be the only possible one for the only possible time that we think it is to the extent that God ends up fulfilling something and saying, I did this, and we deny it, or we say, no, he didn't. I think this is what the Jewish people did with Jesus Christ, right? They saw his first coming in a certain way, and because he didn't exactly do it just the way they thought, they missed him. They didn't see him. And we don't want to do that with his second coming, because so much of prophecy is about Jesus Christ. It was about his first coming, and now it's about his second coming. So let's not miss that. Studying predictive prophecy shouldn't scare us. It's something we need to be careful about and treat with respect and caution, um, especially caution in our dogmatism. But it's a valuable portion of scripture and we shouldn't shy away from it either because the things that God ordained to come to pass are going to come to pass. One way or another, whether we have the right interpretation or not, we need to be always reading and discerning and not just the times, but what the Bible says. Because in the end, prophecy is so much wrapped up in our Christian living, or at least should be. Because, like I said earlier, it's so often something where God says, if you do this, I will respond like this. If you act this way, this is what you will receive in turn. And so prophecy shouldn't scare us. It shouldn't freak us out. It shouldn't make us say, well, I need to stay away from that because I don't want to get it wrong. But we need to recognize what is being said so that we know how to act now, how to prepare so after we've filtered any prophetic passage through what we've learned today and done proper hermeneutics on those verses, we need to just ask ourselves, now what? Now what? If we read and interpret judgment on us, then we need to repent. But that doesn't mean that that judgment won't still come upon us. If we read and interpret salvation, we need to thank God. But that doesn't mean we don't need to obey. If we read and interpret famine or pestilence or corrupt leaders or any of these end time events, we need to pray and prepare, but it doesn't mean that we get to escape it every time. No matter what we read or what we interpret or what we conclude, we need to watch and we need to discern, but above all, we need to know that the end is the same. Throughout all of the things that prophecy is speaking to, the thing that it is building to is Christ coming again, and that's something that the whole Bible, including and especially prophecy, is pointing to, and there's no confusion and no mystery about that.